0: Good morning. It's been a little while. It's good to be back. It's good to see all of you. I'll give you a guess where we're going to be. Actually, I like the Bible. That's right. Romans chapter (laughs) 4. We're just going to pick up right where we left off. So let's go and pray real quick. Father God, we come to you, Lord, and we just thank you so much uh, for our time together, Lord. We, uh, we we feel so blessed to be reunited, Lord. Uh, we thank you for sending your presence here, Lord. We just pray that uh, our time together would be a time of worshiping you, uh, Lord, that you would know that our, our hearts uh, long for your presence and uh, long to to commune with you, and Lord, so we just... Uh, Lord, we, we love you, we praise you, we pray, Lord, that as we look through your text, Lord, that you would reveal to us um, any, any, anything that uh, you, you are still molding into your image, Lord, and that we would be receptive to that, Lord, that we would just open our minds, open our hearts to receive you, uh, Lord, that we may look more and more like you each day. And Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Amen. All right, so um, it's been a little while, so let's recap a little bit. We're just going to pick up Romans 4, right where we left off. So um, if you remember, we started back in October. So gosh, it's been almost a year ago we started in Romans. uh, And uh, we we examined how Paul had this... uh, um, Introduction. basically in the introduction we were able to look at, uh, in Romans 1 he talks about the fact that he has heard of the faith uh, of the Roman church, uh, and remember that at this point in uh, the church in Rome's history, no apostle had been there, um, we know that because Paul had kind of made it claim, uh, plain in Acts that he really didn't go anywhere else that other apostles had been. Um, he pretty much did his own thing, uh, and he was uh, pretty much... Uh, um, Focused on reaching the Gentiles, so, um, and so he says he's heard of their faith. He longs to come see them. We also see that his whole point is to use the church in Rome as a. Um, kind of a staging ground to move on further into Spain. Um, and then he starts, he begins uh, towards the end of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3 to start talking about how the entirety of humanity is guilty uh, and without excuse uh, that uh, we have all sinned against God. Uh, none of us are holy, none of us are righteous, whether we're um, Gentiles uh, or, or the lost um, claiming that we just didn't know He says, no, that's not going to work um, All of creation cries out um, and, uh, Or were the, uh, the Jews at the time uh, Claiming that we are righteous God blessed us He gave us, you know, we're of Abraham He gave us the law He gave us circumcision He gave us the prophets We have all of these things And he says, hold on Not, not so much In fact, that kind of makes you more guilty than the Gentiles Because not only do you have creation telling you You have sp- the specific words of God Telling you this is what you should be doing And yet you have not done that So that's kind of brings us back to where we are Remember the last sermon that I, I did We talked about standing in the throne room Or the courtroom of God And and uh, being pronounced guilty uh, to eternal damnation And yet instead of being um, Um, having somebody stand up and defend you and winning your court case, what actually happened is God himself stepped down and took your punishment for you. Um, Biggest plot twist in history. So let's pick up in Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Okay, Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 8. It says what then shall we say that abraham our forefather discovered in this matter if in fact abraham was justified by works he had something to boast about but not before god what does the scripture say abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness now when a man works his wages are not credited credited to him as a gift but as an obligation however to the man who does not work but trusts god who justifies the wicked His faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Amen. So um, I've got several things that I was, as I was um, Studying this passage um, that I've picked up on That I I feel like God has just kind of laid on my heart And so we're going to look through those Uh, One point that I want to make going into this So this is a very important point What does it take to stand in the presence of God? It takes holiness God is holy, he is perfectly holy And anything that is not holy that is within God's presence is consumed Okay. So in order for us to stand within the presence of the Lord We must be holy and what we have found through Romans 1 through 3 is that we can't be. We are incapable of being holy. Okay? And so the first thing we see, Romans 4, 1 through 3, says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the first thing that we discover about righteousness or holiness is that it is something that is credited to us. It is not something that we own. It is not something that is ours. It is something that God has credited to us. In fact, the Greek, the word there is logizomai, um, and it means to reckon or to consider. So the word translated, credited, logizomai, means to consider. So what the passage in Genesis, it's Genesis 15, 6, uh, that Paul is quoting here says, is that Abraham believed God, and God considered him righteous because of it. So now, what that does not mean is that Abraham was righteous. It does not mean that Abraham acted in a righteous manner all the time. It means that because of his faith, God considered him righteous, And so uh, you also have to understand that at this point in Romans, Paul is talking primarily to the Jewish Christians that have come back. What we see a lot in these churches that Paul is working with is there's a bunch of tension between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. Um, And at this point, the Jewish Christians are basically saying, you need to observe all of this law. The law is what makes us holy. We're going to get into that a lot more next week. Um, But um, he is talking specifically to the Jewish Christians right here. And what's important for you and I to understand about Judaism uh, is that it didn't matter if you were a Jewish rabbi or if you were a Jewish fisherman. You spent the first 12 years of your life studying the scriptures. So the people he's speaking to know who Abraham is. They know who Abraham is very well, um, way better than we probably do. And so what what I want to do is I want to take a jump back into Genesis, and I want to examine the life of Abraham and see what we see. Is Abraham somebody that was righteous? So Abraham's story is told starting in Genesis 12, and it runs through his death in Genesis chapter 25. Um, it's it opens up with God calling uh, Abraham um, to uh, leave Haran, so let's jump back to Genesis chapter twelve real quick. We're going to spend a bunch of time in Genesis today. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is our introduction to Abraham. Um, the only mention to him before is his genealogy, where we get to his name, and then we jump in right here in chapter 12. So, you think a story opens, God has personally communed with Abraham and told him, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you into this great nation, and so you expect that Abraham's response is sweet, let's do this. Um, And it is, Abraham packs up and he leaves. Um, However, twice, right after this, Abraham lies about or or at the very least misleads about the identity of his wife, Sarah happens twice. It happens first in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. And it happens again in chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. The first time it is when he enters into Egypt, and the second time it is when he enters into Gerar. And there's a lot more that can be said about that one. We'll get to that in a minute. So when you compare the text, in fact, let's, let's jump there. Let's read that. So we're going to compare the text between the two incidences. Um, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. It says now there was a famine in the land and abram went down to egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe as he was about to enter egypt he said to his wife sarai i know what a beautiful woman you are when the egyptians see you they will say this is his wife then they will kill me but will let you live say you are my sister so that i will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men's service, and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram, What have you done to me? He said, Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I I took her to be my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So that's the first instance. Now let's jump to 20 and we're going to read 1 through 7 and we're going to compare the way the text is written here. 1 through 7, chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may, you may be sure that you and all of yours will die. And so what we see is that Abraham lies... And in the first instance, um, the text implies that it cost Sarah her innocence. It implies that Pharaoh slept with Sarah. He took her as his wife. We don't know that for sure, but it's certainly implied there in the text. And so one of the – this is a side point. This is really not a main point of the sermon. It's a side point here, and it's something that we talked about uh, this morning, is that sin always has consequences. You will never escape the consequences of your sin. And oftentimes, your sin, if it is not dealt with, will have consequences for your children. Okay? They're not held accountable for it, but it will have consequences for them. And so um, we see here that Abraham's lie, if he had just trusted the father who had already told him, I'm going to make you into a great nation, it's hard to do that if you're dead, right? Right? It's hard for God to turn me into a great nation if I go into Egypt, and Egypt kills me. So I know, I should know at least, that because I have a promise from the Lord, I am safe in Egypt, and I don't need to take matters into my own hands. Um, but his sin in his fear and his lack of trust cost Sarah, okay? And so then we keep moving on in Genesis chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 4 we see that once again, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. Um, Sarah, uh, Abra- or God has uh, reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham and has told him that he would not be um, leaving his household to his servant. He would, be, he would have an heir of his own body. And so he knows, again, he's going to be made into a great nation, um, and that here we are um, some years later, and he once again... I guess, doubts that God is going to follow through on that, and so maybe God meant that I need to sleep with my slave. So Sarah gets this idea, and she says, hey, let's do this. And so um, he sleeps with Hagar, and Hagar becomes pregnant, and he has his first son, Ishmael. And once again, we see that no sin lacks consequence, because what happens now is Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar and begins to mistreat Hagar so bad that they run away. So once again, there is no sin without consequence, okay? And we see that in uh, verses 5 through 6. So not only was Abraham's actions not always righteous, Abraham did not always have this perfect faith that he believed in God. We see that uh, in the fact that he slept with Hagar, like we just talked about. If he had just trusted God's word, then he would have waited, and been patient, and not tried to take matters into his own hands. If he had trusted in God's promise, he wouldn't have lied when he went into Egypt. He would have trusted. Um, And we see it even more so uh, uh, because God's original promises in chapter 12, verse 1 through 3 that we read was that Abraham uh, was told that he would be a great nation. And then we fast forward into chapter 15, verses 2 through 3, Um, Abraham's questioning God's plan. In fact, uh, Abraham laughs at God when God says that Sarah would have a child. Abraham laughs. And God, in his loving kindness, did not destroy Abraham. Uh, Can you imagine that? How insulting it would be for God to look at you and say, No, you're going to have a kid. And Abraham's like, Are you sure? And God, in his kindness, didn't hold that against him. In fact, God, in his humor, said, why don't you name your kid Isaac? Which to me doesn't really mean much, but Isaac actually means he laughs. So God says, you think this is funny? Watch this, name your kid Isaac. (laughs) So we see uh, examining the life of Abraham that it's very evident. Abraham was not a righteous man. He did not live a righteous life. God in his sovereign will chose Abraham. Abraham did not choose God. God chose Abraham. And for what purpose? To accomplish God's purposes. God chose Abraham to be the vessel through which the Savior would eventually come and God would fulfill the promise that I would make you a great nation and those that bless you would be blessed and I will curse those that curse you and so through Abraham's lineage we get the Savior and the entire world becomes blessed so in spite of Abraham's shortcomings Abraham did trust God. Not perfectly not all the time He didn't live a perfectly righteous life. But because of that faithfulness, God considered him righteous. And so I want to slow down here and I want to ask you, how many times do you think I could not do that? God could not use me because I'm not good enough. How many times do you look at your life and think, God couldn't accomplish some amazing thing through me because I'm screwed up, you know? How many times do we, on the other end of the spectrum, try to consider ourselves more, you know, think of ourselves more highly than we should? And, and we think that maybe God owes us something because, man, I've gone to church my whole life. You know, I, I, I've uh, been faithful when things got difficult. Um, I've never walked away from the church. I've never walked away from the faith. Maybe it's easy to step into this place where we think that God owes us something. And um, so that kind of just leads me right into the, the next point, and that righteousness cannot be earned. It, it can't be earned. Um, let's examine verses, Roman, back in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 4. We're going to move on into verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read them. If you want to jump there, you can. Um, but verses 4 through 6, picking up there, says, Now to the one who works, pay is not considered a gift, but an obligation. Um, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So in this American culture that we live in, we have this can-do attitude that we're just going to get out there, and we're going to make something happen, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're going to be a self-made man, and we see that as this next generation's coming on, you know, the millennial generation, We, and I am a millennial, but I get frustrated too. Um, this entitlement mentality that we're owed something. It's funny that we started talking about this. I was like, huh. That's interesting. That's what I was going to talk about. Um, but there's this entitlement mentality in society that I am owed something because I exist. Give me free health care. Give me free co- uh, a free college education. Um, and Randy's saying that there are people pushing, just pay me just because I'm alive. Just give me money. Um, and um, it's, it's frustrating. And there certainly is an element. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 teaches us that if anyone does not take care of his own family, He's abandoned his faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever. So there is certainly an element that is true in, in, in American culture that we should provide. We should work. There should be something. This, this millennial ideal of entitlement, this obligation um, that, that I am owed something, is, it's, it's not good. But you can swing to. Have you even noticed that as a society we tend to be pendulum swingers? We go from one side, one extreme, all the way to the other extreme. We get in one ditch or we get in the other. We can't seem to stay on the road. Um, and so... Um, The other extreme is that we think that everything is ours. And, guys, we are like turtles on fence posts, okay? We didn't get there by ourselves. You are not a self-made man. You are not where you are solely because of your own efforts. If you examine your life, you'll find that there has always, at the right time, been something, someone. God has opened some kind of a door for you that has led you to where you are today. So don't boast, okay? If you're, not, if you're not careful, you should probably go read Proverbs 16, uh, verse 18. Uh, humpty-dumpty there because uh, it says that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit comes before fall. That can-do attitude, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, can be very sinister and very insidious. It can seep into areas of your life so that pride wells up. And, and you begin to look down on people that maybe have uh, worse circumstances than you, maybe people that don't have uh, the things that you have worked for. It's easy to look at somebody and think to yourself, man, I earned that. And, and, and that's true, but that doesn't ever give us the right to mistreat somebody. We see that that's kind of what the Corinthians were doing in, in uh, the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 uh, Corinthians um, before the... Um, um, the agape feast, uh, the more affluent Christians were going in and they were eating everything before the, um, the, the poorer Christians could get in. And so it's very easy to let this pride well up in us to where we look down on somebody. But if you ever do that, you, you, you better repent. Because let me tell you, um, have you ever thought about what the implications uh, of that, of that attitude is if it seeps over into your Christian walk? this attitude that I've earned something, the implications are that if I earned my salvation, the implications are that Christ suffered for nothing. His crucifixion was meaningless. His beatings, his crown of thorns, his mocking, his humiliation, everything we talked about in that last sermon, um, it was for nothing because you earned it, right? No. Let me tell you what your wages are. Let me tell you what you've earned. If you want to get what you deserve, um, let me tell you what that is. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin or death. That's what you've earned. That's what your life has gotten you. And we see it both in an eternal sense and in a daily life sense. We see that the eternal consequences of our sinfulness is damnation. It's death. It's separation from the Father. But we also see it through the life of Abraham. And if you slow down long enough and think, you'll see it in your life. When you have sinned, it has caused the death of something in your life, the death of relationship, the death of closeness with the Lord, the death of innocence. It's caused the death of something. God was not lying to Eve when he told her, you will die. It was the truth because God does not lie. And we see it. And we don't want to see it. We don't want to accept the fact that death is the consequence of our sin. I love that song. You guys know the the song uh, uh, Reckless Love by Corey Asbury? Have you guys heard it? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. And that's the thing. And so once again, if you find yourself thinking that you've earned it and you've put yourself up on this pedestal and you look down on somebody that maybe has been addicted to something their whole life or maybe somebody that has uh, you know, gone crazy in their sexual life and ended up with some kind of a disease that's not incurable and you look down on them, you better get down on your knees and thank God because it is the grace of God that has prevented you from being that there, but for the grace of God go I. And if you find yourself on the other end of the spectrum where you think, and you're looking at somebody like a Billy Graham, or you're looking at the Apostle Paul, or you read Peter, and you think, I could never accomplish that. Remember, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. You're going to stand in the presence of the Father, and Billy Graham's not going to be whiter than you are. His garments are not going to be cleaner than you are. You're not going to stand in the presence of God. He's going to be kind of grungy, man, back up. No, his blood was the perfect atoning sacrifice, and you are white as snow. And so that leads me to my final point here. What does that mean? Righteousness engenders within us a spirit of obedience. Because earlier we examined all the things that Abraham did wrong, but let's go look at what Abraham did right. Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. At 75 years old, God calls Abraham to leave his family, to leave the land that he's known for 75 years. And Abraham packs up and he leaves. In verse 7 of chapter 12, Abraham builds an altar and worships the Lord. In chapter 13, verses 8 through 9, when Abraham and Lot are together and the land cannot support all of them and their herdsmen are arguing with one another, Abraham looks at Lot and says, Pick where you want to go, I'll take what's left. And in verse um, 18... After Lot has taken the good land and left Abraham with what was there, Abraham built an altar and worshiped the Lord. In chapter 14, verses 14 through 16, when Lot has got himself into trouble, four of the kings from the area have rebelled, picked up, stolen all the stuff from Sodom and Gomorrah, and taken Lot and his family as prisoners. Abraham immediately acts. He picks up his men, his trained fighters, and he goes and he saves Lot. But in the process, Abraham could have acquired huge amounts of wealth. He could have taken all of that stuff that um, um, the kings had stolen. Uh, and we see in verses 21 through 24 when he's talking to, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking. Is it Melchizedek? Um, of course, I would blank. Makes me look great, right? Uh. Uh. Well you guys can find it I I apologize I just went totally blank On the guy's name there So But he tells him He says I won't take any of that Because the Lord Has told me not to So that you can't boast And say that you made me rich And so all of those possessions He leaves behind We see that In uh, chapter 14 Verses 21 through 24 Um, Yeah so there it is The king of Sodom Is the one that he's speaking with And uh, so then Fast forwarding Genesis 17 23 through 27 God has called them to be circumcised. At this point, Abraham's pretty up in age. Um, if you ask me to be circumcised, not, not you know, whatever. Um, I don't think, I don't know that I would want to do that as an adult. I don't think that sounds pleasant at all. Um, but God says, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be the sign of the covenant. This is going to be what you do to show me that you're going to keep your end of the deal. And Abraham is everyone in his household circumcised. Genesis, um, 18, verses 3 through 5, uh, these three visitors show up. It's God, uh, and uh, they're fixing to go check out Sodom and see if they need to destroy it. And Abraham serves them. And um, in fact, in verse 24 through 33, Abraham begins to plea that God would not destroy Sodom. He's got this spirit of humility. God, what if there's five people in there that are, are righteous? Would you destroy the city and the five righteous with it? And so Abraham begins to plead for people in a city that, uh, aside from Lot, I would, I would think it's probably safe to say he probably doesn't know them. Yeah, I mean, he just went to war with them. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Genesis 22 through 1 through 14, after Isaac has been born, this has been a lifelong dream fulfilled. It's the fulfillment of a promise that God has made to Abraham. Isaac's born, and God says, hey, why don't you sacrifice him to me? And Abraham is willing And so in spite of all of Abraham's flaws, we see that his trust in the Lord wells up within him a desire to be obedient. And so you should check your own heart. If you find yourself wondering, if you're a Christian, do you have a desire to be obedient? Is your conscience, is the Holy Spirit interceding inside you and convicting you of things? Because that's the Holy Spirit's job to convict you of the sinfulness in your heart, it's completely illogical that you would surrender your life to the Lord Jesus and stay the same. It means you really don't understand what was done for you. He would call you out of your sin. You would realize this is what put him on the cross, and yet you're not willing to change. Your obedience is not about earning It's about a desire to please and become more and more like Christ. Jump with me to James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can uh, Can such faith save him? Your works are the evidence that you have been saved. It confirms that uh, you are a believer. It confirms that your salvation was real. And so let's, let's, let's re-examine those three points. Righteousness, if you are in Christ Jesus, has been credited to you. If you have surrendered your life to the Lord, righteousness, you are already considered righteous. You did nothing to earn it. You don't deserve it, and you can't do anything to keep it. It was a free gift. And this righteousness begets faithful obedience. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Lord, send me. And that's the question we should all be asking ourselves. What is God calling us to do? We were not meant to be idle people within this world. We were meant to go out and make disciples of the nations. It's the mission that we were left with. And so if you are truly saved and you are truly a Christian, you should have a desire to see that come to fruition. It requires obedience. Faithful obedience. And so um, that, that's the question that I have for you. What is God calling you to do? What is co- God calling you to be? It's uncomfortable. Can you imagine Peter's first steps out on the water? Can you imagine? Can you imagine David stepping into the, into the, the valley to face Goliath? Can you imagine how? I don't think either one of them stood there going, oh, this is going to be good. You know, immediately after that, uh, Peter began to sink. And a lot of times people give Peter a hard time for that. But Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. So what is God calling you to? What is God asking you to be faithful about? And so um, we're going to go now, we're going to have a song of invitation. And if you would like prayers to just discern what that is, let's be praying together Um, That that God would reveal to us What is the purpose of this church What is is Community Baptist Church Supposed to accomplish in El Dorado We're supposed to lift the name of the Lord On high But what, what are the specific plans that God has for our church What is the specific plans That God wants us to accomplish here And how do we step out on faith and accomplish that How do we trust And how do we obey Because successful Christian living is not about the size of the church It's not about your bank account It's not about your health. It's not about anything more than obedience. Successful Christian living is obedient living.